Awesome. I think we are good to go. Let's go. Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. It is July 25th. I'm Kyle Rosdahl. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday. Tuesday shows are, of course, one topic. The topic du jour is space because it's cool and Kimberly and I like to talk about it. And so we're going to and we're going to talk space, most specifically the James Webb Space Telescope. Which you may have heard when we talked about it incessantly last year when it was just getting up in space. But since then, as predicted, it's helped astronomers break totally new ground in our understanding of the universe and how it's how it works, raised tons of new questions. But we're going to learn all about that and more, plus some mind boggling discoveries like gravitational wave background. But back to make us smart about this is Caitlin Casey. She's a professor of astronomy at the University of Texas at Austin and a leader of one of the biggest projects on the JWST, as we the cool kids call it. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> I dork. know. Oh, man. <laughs> Don't steal my joy. Dr. Casey, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, so how does it feel to be celebrating one year of Working on the James Webb, well, I know you were working on it long before, but how does it feel to celebrate a year with the James Webb Space, Tel- Space Telescope? It's JWST. Forget there you it. Go. <laughs> it's awesome. It's It's been a phenomenal year. We're just so excited to have such a, an amazing telescope up in space. It's been uh, transformational in terms of what we've been able to look at in the cosmos, how far we're able to look, how faint we're able to look. So it's really been a whole new world for astronomy in general. And so we're just super excited to see what comes in the next several years from this awesome, awesome telescope. What is your uh, project? Layman's terms, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're it's it's a great question. We are trying to build the largest deep field that has ever been taken. So your listeners may be familiar with the Hubble deep field image. It's one of the most iconic astronomical images ever taken by the Hubble Space Telescope, which is the predecessor for JWST. And Hubble deep field is this image that, you know, represents just a speck on the night sky. If you're holding your arm uh, out and holding a pin in, in that, you know, in your hand, it is the area of sky that is covered just by the head of a pin. It's wow. an incredibly tiny area and in it, it contains thousands, like tens of thousands of galaxies that stretch all the way back to the beginning of the universe. So what we're trying to do with JWST is take similarly deep images of space, finding the most distant galaxies, but we're doing it over a big area of sky that's approximately the size of three full moons. So you can imagine the size of the full moon. It's not about, it's it's not a speck on the sky, right? So we're, we're patching together just an enormous deep field that is about 200 times larger than the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. So how's that going? 
<laughs> it's yeah, that's it's a lot of work. Let me tell you that. <laughs> um, it's going really, really well. Um, we're not done with it yet, though. So the project is actually so big that um, they couldn't even fit it into the first year um, in its entirety. So half of it is spilling over, and we're not going to get the other half of the uh, deep field until the end of this uh, year, or right around New Year's. Uh, it, it turns out JWST is very, very difficult to schedule. Um, you know, lots lots of different things to consider. It has to, you know, point at sunshield at the at the mm. sun, so the instruments stay cool. And you know, where you can look in the sky at any given time is pretty restricted. And when you're trying to build a really really big deep field, you have to take all of that into consideration. All right, so I'm going to get a little dorky here, actually. One of the big things about this uh, telescope that Kimberly and I fixed on last year when we were talking about it was where it is and why it has to be there. So could you explain, uh, just picking up off your thing about the sunshield and all that jazz, could you explain, number one, what a Lagrange point is and why this thing has to be all the way out there? Yeah, that's a great question. So, yeah, uh, JWST is located at a, a spot uh, called L2. It's a Lagrange point. It's You can think of it like a stable point in um, the solar system. It's kind of like a gravitational special place between the Earth and the Sun. Um, it's actually further out um, from Earth than, you know, it's pointed kind of in the opposite direction of the Sun. So it's always further out in the solar system than the Earth. It's about a million miles. So it's, you know, about five times the distance of the moon. So hmm. it's pretty far out there. And JWST is set up to orbit this special spot. It basically minimizes how much fuel you need to spend in, you know, keeping it in a stable position uh, to keep it around this gravitational um, well. But we, we keep it far away from Earth so that, um, it actually can stay really, really cool. The Hubble Space Telescope orbits Earth, but Hubble is not able to see the same type of light that JWST can see, and and that's in part due in part because the Earth radiates a lot of energy, um, mm. <laughs> and so we want to keep JWST as far away from from that energy as possible. Yeah, it's radiating quite a bit of heat at the moment. Um, yeah, it is. <laughs> Hot everywhere. So, yes, it is. We've just seen these astonishing images, and I'm I'm saying images, not photographs, because I recognize that they're not um, images coming out of JWST. Have you been surprised by anything that you've seen or that you found in the data? Yeah, totally. I think astronomers the world over have been surprised. Um, uh, by all of the discoveries in the last year, but in particular, I think the thing that's most interesting uh, that we've been, you know, thinking a lot about is the discovery of really enormous galaxies that have been found in the universe's infancy. So if I can back up just a little bit and explain or remind everyone what a galaxy is. It's collections of hundreds of billions of stars. There's a lot of gas, dust, dark matter, uh, throw in a little planet, you know, uh, action with <laughs> some aliens planet, probably, <laughs> you know. Yes. 
Yeah. Galaxies are cosmic cities. Like, this is where all the action is in the universe. Um, our city is, you know, the, our cosmic city is the Milky Way. Um, it's huge. Um, but there are billions and billions of galaxies. And as we look towards more and more distant galaxies, we're looking in the past. So with JWST, we're able to look towards the most distant objects we've ever seen and we see galaxies that are surprisingly huge for the age that the universe was when when we are able to see this light. So we're looking at galaxies that formed, you know, a couple hundred million years after the Big Bang. This was when the universe was only like 3% of its current age. It's really, really young. And, you know, we say Rome wasn't built in a day. Well, we actually are looking at galaxies that seemingly have been built incredibly quickly. Not a, not in a day, <laughs> albeit, mm-hmm. but, you know, in 50, 100 million years, cosmically speaking, that's kind of like a day. So we're trying to figure out how these things are built so quickly after the Big Bang itself. Speaking of things being built, and with all possible respect to the engineers and scientists who did the amazing work to, number one, build this thing, number two, get it safely out there, and then number three, sort of operationalize it, are you surprised it's working? <laughs> I, I am pleasantly surprised it's working. Yeah, I, right around the time of launch, the entire community, I think the entire world was slightly worried that, yeah. that something terribly would you know, go wrong. There were over 300 single point failures where, where JWST could just be a piece of floating space junk. Oh, um, and, and so we were all really, really concerned. But we know the engineers just poured their heart outs to make sure that this would work and work flawlessly. And yes, there were, you know, delays getting it up in space. But my goodness, uh, you know, I think I think we uh, the the wait was certainly worth it in terms of the results that we're getting. And, you know, we also look back and know that those delays cost a lot, too. But, you know, uh, the net cost, I, I like to put it in perspective, like JWST costs something like $10 billion. That's what uh, the United States spends on potato chips in a year. So <laughs> I, I, think it's a, I think it's well worth it. That was a well-rehearsed awesome. justification. We like to think, you know, put it in perspective. Right. Science is worth it. No, that's great. That's like when we tell people when we're fundraising, it's like it's no more than your daily cup of coffee. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Um, I want to ask you about something that's not exactly JWST related, but has also confused me the way that much many things do. Um, We've been hearing a lot about a breakthrough on gravitational waves lately. Can you explain that so I can understand? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Lots to unpack there, but super exciting. So gravitational waves, I'll remind you, were discovered um, for the first time. It was announced in 2016 from a discovery in late 2015. And that was um, discovered with the LIGO experiment, which is this giant laser interferometer for gravitational wave observatory. Um, And what gravitational waves are, are ripples in space-time itself, which sounds totally wild. What it is is a warping of the fabric of space from some monumental event, in particular the merging of black holes. 
Um, and this happens when you know black holes have incredibly strong gravitational forces, and when they collide with one another, they kind of in spiral, um, and and then they release a lot of energy, and they basically cause this ripple to propagate through space. It's like, you know, throwing a pebble on the surface of a lake, you see ripples. And so that's mm-hmm. happening in space to the fabric of space uh, all the time. But um, in 2016, the initial gravitational wave detections were a discovery of black holes that are, you know, formed from stars. They're relatively small black holes. We actually know that there are much, much, much larger black holes in the cosmos Mm -hmm. um, that are at the center of galaxies. It's like, you know, the cosmic hub. Um, And those supermassive black holes should also give away gravitational waves. And so the recent result announced from this a uh, new gravitational wave experiment called Nanograv is really, really clever. They have now detected a pervasive background of gravitational waves caused by the merging of supermassive black holes. Um, and it's it's like instead of, you know, the ripple on the surface of the lake, it's like we've been, you know, thrown in an open ocean where there's just a tumultuous storm um, and we're not standing on steady ground anymore at all. Basically, the cosmos is constantly churning and there are these ripples sent through space that change the shapes of objects as they as they propagate. So it's a pretty abstract concept. Um, they did this experiment through really a really cool technique. They used stars all throughout our galaxy, actually as the telescope, as the detector, Um, Mm -hmm. uh, because this experiment could not be done on planet Earth alone, which is pretty wild to think about. People are super clever, basically. (laughs) So, so, all right, I'm going to get even even dorkier here. Could you give like a, a, and I I only do this because I know you're an educator and you can do this. Could you do like a a 60-second version of what space-time is, that whole continuum thing we hear about. Oh, and, man, and that's I know. a great question. I, I, mm-hmm. So you got 60 seconds, right? And and also, why it, other than the knowing of that we're on this constantly churning mass of, of space, what are we going to do with this now that we know about it? That's a great question. So space-time is... Uh, you know, you have some intuition for this, um, whether or not you know it. So space, you know, it has three dimensions. We walk through space all the time. Um, And then time, you can think of it as a fourth dimension. You know, we march only forward through time in our lived experience. But uh, time also gets warped in funny ways when we um, get uh, close to uh, traveling, you know, at very high speeds um, in the the cosmos or near really strongly um, gravitational objects in space like black holes. Mm-hmm. Um, so space time is, you know, just where we live. Um, so you can, you know, it's as simple as that. Okay. Um, and in terms of why, you know, why, what are we learning and, you know, how is it important? Man, I, you know, it doesn't get more <laughs> fundamental than the reality, you know, of, 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 you know, our existence. Right. And so I think the fact that we're able to design these incredibly clever experiments that 
learn about these really fundamental facts of, you know, the geometry of the space around us and the cosmos around us. I, I think it's pretty important. Again, worth worth a year's worth of potato that, chips. Huh? No, totally. But look, <laughs> sorry, last, last thing and then I'll get out of your hair. Do you have, when you're in a PhD program studying this kind of stuff, do you have to take like philosophy classes so that you can wrap your brain around mm. it? Because honestly, it's just, it's, uh, no pun intended, otherworldly, right? How you think about this stuff. Yeah, it is. I mean, your brain will explode if you think about it every day. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on the day-to-day basis, I I you know, we're not we're not thinking about the philosophical implications right. of what we what we do, but uh it's you know, certainly whenever I get in a classroom and and see the wonder on the face of like yeah. students, it's it it blows my mind every mm-hmm. time, you know, how okay. lucky that I get to study this stuff. Yeah. Caitlin okay. Casey, go ahead. All right, Wait, well, no, 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 I, I got to get, get the last one. Then one we last one, I, right. I swear. But in terms of it, like, blowing your mind, I mean, I had a super religious upbringing, right? And I, people jumped through all sorts of hoops to try to explain the Big Bang and match it up with creationism and, you know, the whole seven days thing. I mean, has has this whole experience, like, at all changed the way that you actually do think about your philosophy of, of time and, and space and even like faith and things? Yeah, yeah. I would say um, it's very common for folks who study this stuff to, you know, have a moment of questioning everything you've learned uh, growing up uh, and, you know, whether or not you're you're religious or or you know have some spirituality it certainly grounds you in a different way and um what i've kind of come to accept is that science is a quest where we're trying to understand the truth and we're trying to understand to the best of our ability what the history of everything is, not just life on Earth, the cosmos, um, how it came to be. And, you know, I think it every time we design a new experiment, the cosmos surprises us. We we weren't expecting the Big Bang initially. We weren't expecting that the universe is accelerating in its expansion. So many of these things were not expected, but it's the pursuit of that truth that... Um, has become kind of the the grounding principle that I think uh, a lot of scientists hold on to, and we we try to also you know share that because I think that's that that uh, anchors you in a way that um, you know trying to shoehorn um, science into you know a certain religious philosophy it, it is can be difficult. All right, for real now, Caitlin Casey, professor of astronomy at the University of Texas at Austin. Super fascinating. Thank you so much. That was great. Hmm. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I could have done that all day. All day. I know, right? It's only a half an hour podcast. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not going to say too much no. more, but let us know what you think about this new era of, of space discovery. And if it, you know, honestly, I'm curious if it changes the way y'all feel about, you know, what you learned growing up or, or what you think now. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. You can also email us, makemesmart at marketplace.org. We will be right back. We all want to be our best selves. 
but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. Okay, news, Kimberly, you may go. Thank you. Well, yeah. I was struck. I try to shake by... it up every week. <laughs> yeah, you know. Whatever. Add some spice to That's life. Right. Um, by two um, con- contributions to the opinion pages of uh, two of our major newspapers, the Mo- Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, which, as many of you will know, often say very different things <laughs> on their opinion <laughs> pages to put put it mildly. But both of them have opinion pieces right now on immigration saying effectively the opposite things. So Perry Bacon has a piece in the Washington Post saying the left needs to win, not duck the immigration debate. The headline on the Wall Street Journal is America's choice, immigration or bust. Both of them saying that we are struggling with population decline. We do not have enough people. We do not have enough workers, especially we when we consider, you know, the aging baby boomer population and them leaving the workforce while also requiring more care, especially in the healthcare industry. Yeah. But our working age population is declining. We are in trouble. And the only solution, because, you know, blame it on millennials not having kids because it's too expensive to mm-hmm. raise a child in this country. Um The only solution at this point is immigration. And you have the Wall Street Journal, which often carries the opinions of people complaining a lot about immigration, saying that we have to get somebody to say that immigration is good for America. And that needs to be the narrative. And that was very interesting to me. And then you have Perry Bacon in the Post saying that the left needs to own that argument and push, I guess, promote Republicans as anti-immigration because of their policies. And it's it's almost as if people want the same thing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. if only we could perhaps come up with some policies that could achieve the goal that apparently we all seek. I remember one time I was doing an election story on um, immigration in in the last presidential campaign. And, you know, there was some policy that I think Trump was pushing uh, that was anti-immigrant. And I was 
you know, doing that thing where you try to get a variety of perspectives commenting on it. But I was talking to economists about mm -hmm. immigration and I called every conservative think tank I could think of that was not, you know, like on, you know, the Southern Poverty Law Center's mm -hmm. list of hate mm -hmm. groups, you mm -hmm. know, and could not get any of them to say anything aligning with what the Trump campaign was saying. And finally, I talked to this one economist from a conservative think tank, and he said, the reason you're not getting anybody on the record on this is because you are not going to get any self-respecting economist, conservative or liberal, to say that immigration is bad for the economy. Right, right, <laughs> right. And they may not want to say it on the record because they don't want to harm their chances to get a job in the administration, but no self-respecting economist is ever right. going to tell you that immigration is bad for the economy. Right. It's crazy making. We all know it. And look, I've said on this podcast many a time, I have blamed the Congress of the United States uh, for the failure uh, on immigration policy. But it's it's failure up and down the chain of, of leadership and, and intellectuals in this economy, right, both on the right and on the left, who are afraid to speak the truth because of politics, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. Those, those are all good right. items. So that's, that's, yeah. that, that was really good. That was a great juxtaposition and, and really well done. I, that was great. Uh, okay, so I'm just following up from my from my rant from yesterday, where all the news was crap, and and today there's there's actually some good news. I mean, the bad parts are still bad, but the good parts are are, are you know there are some of them. One of one one of them is that UPS has agreed to a contract uh, apparently with the Teamsters. There's a tentative deal. This would have been a very big deal if there was a strike, and I just think it's progress that there is some sort of negotiated peace between labor and management on a key slice of this economy. All those brown vans that drive around, so that's a good thing. And then the other good thing slightly less good but and slightly more remote but but still generally good is that the international monetary fund um increased raised its global growth forecast this year despite some you know not great signs right there's still inflation china slowing down all of that jazz but global economic growth is now expected to be around three percent which is historically on average very good and especially given where we are coming out of the pandemic and supply chains and china slowing is pretty good. So, so yesterday was terrible, and today here's you know reasonably happy Kai, and and that's what we got. It's like that song from Annie. Yesterday was plain awful. That's right. You know, but that was right. then. Not Sun will now. come out tomorrow anyway. or whatever it is. Anywho, different song in the play, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> different song so in the musical. Sorry. That's all right. That's the only one I know. Oh man. Oh, that and this hard knocks from life. The ending song. Hard knocks life. <laughs> It's a hard knocks life. Anyway, go ahead. Different one still. All right, that's uh, it for the news. Let's do the mailbag. Only one song. Hi, so. Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. All right, so Women's World Cup is on. The United States women play tomorrow, by the way, tomorrow evening uh, against the Netherlands. That's going to be a good game. Anyway, I mentioned that because last week I brought up a New York Times article on the high rates of ACL injuries in women's soccer, right? The the anterior cruciate ligament in the knees. Lots of those popping up right now in women's soccer. Uh, and we got this. Hi, this is Stephanie calling from Somerville, Massachusetts. The BBC has been doing this very interesting series on other issues surrounding women's soccer or football, as I like to call it. Um, and one of the things that has come up is that the women don't get their own boots designed for women's feet. And so oh. they end up getting less ankle support and less arch support. And just the way that women's biomechanics work, it ends up rotating knees more often than it rotates ankles. So women have much higher rates of ACL injuries than the men do. Um, thanks for making us all smart. 
hopefully that made you a little smart too. No, it was really good. There was a piece on on another public radio program whose initials are all things considered. Mary Louise Kelly did an interview with somebody about a Nike coming out with a soccer cleat designed specifically for women to address some of those issues. The cleat pattern on the bottom is different. The contact areas for the ball uh, up on top are different. So, yeah, I mean, science is getting there. And that was kind of the point of me bringing up that article in the first place is that women's athletics is now getting the attention it needs to fix some of the chronic problems, right? And I'll speak only specifically about soccer here, right? But playing on turf and conditioning help and and, and equipment help with the new cleats, that's what it's all about. Well, and it's kind of like how for so many years women had higher fatality rates in car accidents because mm-hmm. like, yeah, totally. cars were not designed for us to survive. Exactly. And so, you know, you can, these are fixable problems. Yeah. All right. One more. A while ago, I mentioned that I had some non-alcoholic beer that I needed to use up, um, which randomly I used in a recipe yesterday. Uh, And someone called in with a different recipe to help me out. Hi, Make Me Smart team. This is Lori from San Diego with a cocktail recipe for Kimberly. We learned the recipe while stationed overseas in Iceland, and it's called the Combat Margarita. You need a frozen (laughs) limeade can any size. You need some tequila and you need a beer. I know it doesn't sound promising, but stick with me. First, dump the frozen limeade into the blender. Next, fill the limeade can with tequila, add that to the blender, (laughs) and then fill the limeade can with beer and add again to the blender. Blend the whole thing with ice and prepare to be amazed. Wow, I don't know. I am skeptical. I don't know. But I will try it. I don't know. I can see Drew through the glass. He's sort of chuckling and shaking his head. I don't know. I mean, I look, know. it's it's hot. It's hot. It's about time for some frozen cocktails. <laughs> oh, and by using the non-alcoholic beer, it's going to make that drink less boozy, which is probably good for me because yes. after last Friday, I still believe gin is the devil. There you go. All right. So before we go, uh, we're going to leave you with this week's uh, uh, answer to the Make Me Smart question. What is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? Um, so we're going to play this and then we'll do a little back announce here. Hello, Make Me Smart crew. My name is Shannon, and I'm voice memoing from San Diego, California. The video that I sent is of a local tortoise named Dash. I see him quite often when I'm out for an evening walk, and the other day, he really looked like he was hiccuping. And then came home and consulted the interwebs and found out that, indeed, tortoises can get the hiccups, which... I find is just a wonderful thing Um, and is also a bit of a thing that I thought that I knew and later found out I was wrong about in the sense that every time I have the hiccups, I always think that they are never going to end. And every time I am proven wrong, they are a thing that seems like they will never be over like a very long week, but they are. So she sent us a video of this tortoise. His name, as she said, is Dash. We will have it on the show page. And he's got the hiccups. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. It's a little how make did... me smile on a Tuesday, I guess. But how, did the, how does the tortoise get rid of the hiccups? Because we know. all have our own strategies. What does the tortoise my, do? My, my, wife is a, my wife is a chronic hiccupper, and she's got all kinds of tricks. All kinds of tricks. <laughs> all right. We want to hear your answer to the Make Me Smart question. Our number, again, is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Today's episode of Make Me Smart, which is the podcast you are listening to, is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Today's program is engineered by, just checking, yes, he's still there, Drew Jostad. Becca Weinman's going to mix it down later. Our intern is Neil Shabandi. 
Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez. Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. There you have it. Gonna go ponder God now. Yeah, right. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.